Well, hello. Some of you have alluded to the fact that my job title has been changing from pastor to televangelist, and uh, that's not something that I like. It's, it's good to see you all here this morning, and those joining us via live stream, good morning to you as well. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 3. Last week, the passage that we covered, Paul gave us some harsh words for the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Christians, putting quotes around this, Christians in the early church, who taught that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. And Paul had very harsh words for this group. Philippians 3, verse 2, Paul says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Very strong words here. And in verse 3, the passage that we're covering this morning, I want you to see how verse 3 begins. Verse 3 begins with a 4. Verse 3 is serving as the reason or reasons for why Paul tells the Philippians why this group of people are false teachers. And in verse 3, Paul gives four reasons. The reasons are this. Be looking in your text as I go through this. The first reason is Paul gives is that we are the circumcision. That's going to be the subject, the, 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 the part of the passage that we cover this morning. Just this first assertion that we are the circumcision. I'm going to explain all morning, this morning, what that means. So that's the first reason. That's what we're going to dive into this morning. But there's three other reasons. Paul also says, who worship by the Spirit of God. Another way to put this is that look out for these Judaizers. Why? Because we are the circumcision, first reason. Second reason, because we worship by the Spirit of God. The Judaizers... Do not worship by the Spirit of God. We'll cover that next week. And then Paul says, the third, the third reason he gives is that we glory in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. The Judaizers do not do this. That's the third reason. The fourth reason, we, the Philippians, Christians, put no confidence in the flesh. That's the fourth reason. So, Paul gives in verse 3 four reasons why he says what he says in verse 2. Verse 3 we're going to cover this week and next week. The portion of verse 3 that we're going to cover this week is what Paul says here right at the beginning of verse 3. For we are the circumcision. The reason why we need to spend the whole time this morning discussing this is because it's difficult to understand what Paul is saying here. Sometimes, whenever we read the Bible, the, its meaning is immediately understood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Take John 3.16, for example. It was God's love that moved him towards sending his son to this earth. You can pick that up quite quickly from John 3.16. In this passage, though, we need to spend a little bit more time understanding what Paul is saying. And as we go through this morning, I'm, I'm, the structure of the sermon is going to be less oriented towards points. 
There's going to be one long point, and then there's going to be a point of application. Now, I will mention transitions, but these aren't the formal points that I usually use. They'll just give some structure to what I'm doing this morning. So this morning's going to be a bit different. It's going to be a lot of teaching. We're going to spend a lot of time exploring, both in the Old and New Testament, what Paul means here when he says, for we are the circumcision. And at the end, I'll have some application for you. So that's where we're headed. So, if you're taking notes, you might write this. Paul's point. Paul's point. What exactly is Paul saying when he says, for we are the circumcision? Well, the, the way I want to first explain this is by way of emphasis. You notice this we here. I don't want us to read the passage like this. Do not read the passage this way. For we are the circumcision. There's no inflection there. I want us to read it like this. For we are the circumcision. What Paul is doing here is he is saying that it is him and the Philippians who, are, who should be considered the circumcision. By implication, what he's saying is that the Judaizers are not, quote, the circumcision. There's some emphasis that we need to apply to the word we here. For we are the circumcision, not the Judaizers. And the problem that Paul is highlighting here with the Judaizers is he is saying that the Judaizers have taken this label of the circumcision and they've co-opted it. They've taken it, changed its meaning, and now they're using this title for themselves. An illustration in today's society could be the rainbow. The rainbow. If you study the Bible, the rainbow is a very important symbol of God's love and his promise and his faithfulness. Now today, whenever I say rainbow, what do you think about? You think about the symbol for the LGBTQ community. This is their flag. This is the symbol that they use to show the world who they are. Now where did the rainbow, the symbol of the rainbow, come from? It came from the story of the flood. That after God sent a judgment upon the world, he made a promise to Noah. And he said that he would never again flood the world. And the symbol that God used to represent that covenant was a rainbow. The rainbow is an original sign of God's love and his faithfulness and his promise keeping. But today... That's not the image and the story that people get from the rainbow. If you see a rainbow flag, you think of homosexuality. And what the homosexual movement has done is they've taken the symbol of righteousness and faithfulness and they've changed its meaning and they've co-opted it. They've taken the rainbow, which is such an important symbol in the biblical narrative, And they've taken it for themselves and they've co-opted it. They've changed its meaning. And they're using it to support a cause that the rainbow was never intended to support. So that's that's what the Judaizers have done. 
they've taken this notion of the circumcision, this sign, this symbol that was given by God as a symbol of his faithfulness and love. And they've taken that and they've changed it. They've distorted it to something that it was never meant to mean. They've co-opted the term. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, give me that. I'm not going to let you use this symbol. Give me that. That is our possession. That is not your possession. Give me back this term. Give me back this identity. Paul is saying, actually, it's not them who are the circumcision. It's us. So that's what Paul's doing. He's fighting them on the basis of them taking a term that belongs to the Christian community, and he's taking it back. Now, how does Paul do this? How is Paul justified in doing this? It's one thing for Paul to say this. It's another thing for him to be right about this. Well, as we'll explore in the Old Testament, circumcision in the Old Testament is understood in two different ways. The first way is that of physical circumcision. Physical circumcision. Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, verse 9. The symbol of circumcision is it's essential to understand what it is in order to understand the Bible as a whole. And circumcision is an idea that entails a physical reality. Genesis 17, verse 9. I will read through verse 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So if Paul is talking with the Judaizers, what the Judaizers will do, this group who Paul is dealing with in Philippians, they'll go to this passage. And they'll point to this last verse, verse 14. And they'll say to Paul, see Paul, look. Look what God said to Abraham. Excuse me, the end of verse 13. They'll say, Paul, look what God said. God said to Abraham, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. They'll say to Paul, Paul, circumcision, the symbol of circumcision is an essential part of God's plan in the world. That's what they'll say, and they'll use this passage to support that. Now, Paul has a response. And Paul's response, the Old Testament's response, is that circumcision is not simply a physical reality. 
The Old Testament teaches that circumcision is an idea that has both a physical and a spiritual component. Circumcision in the Old Testament is both physical and spiritual. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. So as the Bible, as the story of the Bible progresses, so also this notion of circumcision begins to expand. And what God does is God uses this idea of circumcision to point to a spiritual reality. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 6. And the Lord your God, what will he do? He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So if you're reading this as the story of the Bible develops, you realize that, wow, circumcision is a broader category than just physical. Circumcision in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is more than just a physical reality. There is a spiritual component to it. And specifically, what is it that is, will be circumcised in the Jews? What is it that's specified in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? It is the heart. It is the heart. Now, heart here is not referring to the physical organ. The way that we would define the, the Old Testament usage here of heart is soul. Moses here is talking about the center of the person, the very, their very essence, their being, who they are in their deepest, most intimate part. And what God is saying is that one day, he will not just circumcise the foreskins of Jewish men, but he will circumcise all Jews in their heart. And why will God do this? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Alluded to here is the spiritual problem of sin. What it is that keeps Israel from God is the heart. It is the heart of man that keeps him from God. And God says that one day he will address that issue. He will remove from people the foreskin of their heart. He will remove it. He will circumcise their hearts for the purpose that people might love God with all their heart and with all their soul. There is a spiritual surgery 
that God must do on people to get them to love him. And the spiritual surgery is referred to as circumcision. So that's the Old Testament. You have two narratives going. You have a narrative of physical circumcision and you have spiritual circumcision. And as the story continues to develop, the way the Bible starts with physical circumcision, it begins taking a back seat to spiritual circumcision. The reason why the Judaizers are wrong, Paul says, the reason why he can say, we are the circumcision, is because the priority in the Bible, the priority of circumcision is given to the spiritual element. What it is that man needs most is a transformation of his heart. It is not some religious identity marker that man needs most. And the Judaizers emphasize the wrong part of circumcision. They say this is the most important part. And Paul says, no, this spiritual component, man's greatest need, your greatest need is to have your heart circumcised. That's what Paul is saying here. But I want to show you Paul saying that. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word. Let's go to Romans 4. Romans 4. Paul knew the Old Testament. He was a Jew. He was well acquainted to what the Old Testament teaches. And he said these things based upon what the Old Testament taught. Go to Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? We just dealt with Abraham in Genesis 17. So Paul is bringing up here in Romans 4, Genesis 17. What was gained by his circumcision? What was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was made right with God on the basis of his circumcision, I'm translating here, this is not what the passage is saying, but this is what Paul is teaching. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham was made right with God on the basis of his circumcision, if the Judaizers are right, bringing in Philippians 3 here, if the Judaizers are right, then both Abraham and the Judaizers have a place to boast before God. They have room to say to God, God, look what I've done. Look at me. Look what I have. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, how does Paul end verse 2? He denies that. He denies that Abraham or the Judaizers or anyone has room to boast before God, to say to God, God, aren't you glad I'm here? Paul denies that. Verse 3. What does the scripture say? 
What does the Old Testament say about these things? Paul's answer, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Based upon verse three, what is it that leads Abraham to being made right with God? Is it his circumcision? Are the Judaizers right? No. Verse three specifies, it was Abraham's faith. It was not what he did. It was in whom he believed. Now go down to verse 9. Is this blessing of salvation, of justification, then only for the circumcised? Is salvation only for the Judaizers? Or also for the uncircumcised? Paul's answer. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, how does Paul get there? How does Paul get there? Genesis 17 says that circumcision is an everlasting covenant. But you know what comes before Genesis 17? Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, what does Abraham do? He believes. Paul's point here is that Genesis 17, the mark of circumcision, comes after Abraham had faith. It does not come before. Verse 10. How then was it counted to Abraham? How was Abraham made righteous? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? In the narrative of Genesis... At what point does Abraham become right with God? Is it Genesis 17 or is it Genesis 15? Paul's answer, it was not after. Abraham did not become right with God in Genesis 17, but before in Genesis 15. Abraham became right with God in Genesis 15. It says in Genesis 15, not 17, Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and accounted it to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, Abraham was not circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. This is the purpose of physical circumcision. Romans 4:11. Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That's Paul's answer to the Judaizers. The Judaizers have misunderstood Abraham. They've misunderstood Genesis 17. They've misunderstood the relationship between Genesis 17 and Genesis 15. They've gotten it mixed up. Genesis 17, the sign of circumcision, comes after Genesis 15, when Abraham believed. And so what is the relevance of physical circumcision then? It is a sign. It is a seal. It is important, yes. But its significance was temporary. It was a fading symbol. It was a temporary sign given to a particular people. But now, in light of Christ, it has been superseded. 
It is no longer necessary. To be right with God, you do not have to be circumcised. All along, to be right with God has always been by faith. Now, what is faith? Go to Romans 2, verse 28. So we see the priority of faith over circumcision. Now look what Paul says in Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Listen to this. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul's going to Deuteronomy 30 here. He's saying that Deuteronomy 30 is the real reality. Deuteronomy 30 supersedes Genesis 17. 29. But a Jew is is one inwardly. And look at this. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, the man who has been circumcised in his heart, his praise is not from man, but from God. How can Paul say in Philippians 3.3, how can he say that it is the Gentiles who are uncircumcised? How is it that he can say that they, that we, that Christians are the circumcision? How can he say that? He can say that because circumcision is a matter of the heart. Deuteronomy 36 is the passage that is more important as far as salvation for mankind than Genesis 17. Circumcision played a role. Circumcision had a function. It was intended to separate and designate the people of God. But it was a symbol that was passing. And what ultimately lasts What ultimately matters is the heart. Go to 3.1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Here he's talking about physical. If spiritual circumcision is the more important reality, then what relevance did physical circumcision have? That's the question he's asking here. What is Paul's answer? Much in every way, circumcision does have value, did have value. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Circumcision, as specified in verse 2, circumcision meant that it was the Jewish people who had a monopoly on the revelation of God. The Old Testament was not given to the world. The Old Testament was given to a specific people. And what that meant was that the Jewish people were highly privileged. And circumcision, being a symbol of that revelation, meant that the Jewish people were highly privileged. However, circumcision, physical circumcision, did not address man's central need. Go to 3.9. What then? 
Are we Jews any better off? Are we Jews any better off because we have the symbol of circumcision? Ultimately, are Jews, those who have circumcision, any better off? No. Not at all. Why? Why not? Why are not Jews who are circumcised any better off? For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, are under sin. The Judaizers failed to recognize man's central problem. Man's central problem, your central problem, my central problem, is not religious identity. It's not belonging to a club or a sect. Circumcision was used to mark off Jews from the world. It was a sign. It was a symbol. It was an important symbol, one that God gave Israel. But ultimately, did physical circumcision address man's greatest need? No. It did nothing. Physical circumcision, external religiosity, does nothing to address man's greatest need. So here we're going to pause and review where we've been. Let's go back to Philippians 3. So what am I saying about what Paul says here in Philippians 3.3? This is what I'm saying. Paul can say, quote, we are the circumcision because the Old Testament taught that spiritual circumcision dealt with man's greatest problem. Spiritual circumcision dealt with man's sin. Physical circumcision was a sign and a symbol, but it was passing away. It was spiritual circumcision that was most important. So the reason why Paul can say, we are the circumcision, is because he teaches that man's greatest need is deliverance from sin. And that deliverance from sin only comes by faith. And that faith is spiritual surgery in our hearts. When we have faith, God performs a spiritual surgery in our hearts. And he cuts away the evil foreskin that all of our hearts have. That's how Paul can say this. That's what Paul is saying. Taking the Old Testament, bringing it to a conclusion. Now for you, we've been dealing with Paul, we've been dealing with the Judaizers, we've been dealing with the first century. What relevance does this have for me, Pastor? This is the relevance. The Judaizers' problem was that they misdiagnosed the problem. They tried to apply a false solution to a misdiagnosed problem. They did not deal with the heart of man. The Old Testament teaches that what keeps man from God is his heart. It's not religious identity. It is his heart. What man needs most is to be circumcised in his heart. The Judaizers missed this. 
They misdiagnose the problem. If you're sick and you go to the doctor, the only way for you to get better is if the doctor correctly diagnoses your problem. To get help, we must realize what's wrong. We all have problems, don't we? We all have a whole litany of problems. And there is a tendency in all of our hearts to have this Judaizing spirit. To see something as not the problem as the problem. We have a tendency towards misdiagnosis. We have a tendency towards seeing that our problems do not result from our sin. And the reason why we have this tendency is because we desire to think highly of ourselves. You can't think highly of yourself if you say, you know what? The reason why I'm going through all these difficulties in life, the reason for all of my problems, is actually me. It's hard to say that. And so what we do is we say, you know what? The answer to my problem, my problems really lie on my outside. They're not actually coming from me. Here's an example from my life. I felt a bit of restlessness recently for the past two months. It's been correlated with what's going on with this COVID stuff. I felt this restlessness. I felt this perpetual boredom. Have you felt this? This monotony. And I felt this. And I found myself to deal with this. What I've been doing is I would go on the internet and order something. Whenever you're really bored, you know what's really exciting? Getting an Amazon package. And I found myself doing this, and I found myself looking at things and thinking about buying things that I really didn't need. Or I'd check my email, look for some exciting email. You ever do that? You're bored, you pull out your phone, look at an email. Now, I, I always have this tendency, but recently it's been heightened. And the longer I've reflected on it, the, longer I, the more I've seen that what's resulting, yes, it is true that life's been kind of boring. Yes, it is true that monotony, I've been experiencing a bit more monotony recently. Those things are true. However, I fail to account that the restlessness is coming from my discontentment. The restlessness is coming from my discontentment, my lack of thanks to God for what he has given me. And the way I've dealt with this is saying, oh, I need something. I want to buy something, some book or some article of clothing, or I need a vacation, or I need an email to keep me excited. But I've misdiagnosed. My problem is discontentment. I'm not satisfied in Christ. And so I look to other things to satisfy me. And that package comes, and I open it, and I look at it, and I want another package. Transitioning to more of a general illustration marriages. We all, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Many people experience difficulties in their marriage. Many people. You go to the farthest reaches of this world, you will find people who are married and who have struggles in their marriage. 
And there is a tendency in marriages to say something like, we need a date. We need better communication habits. We need to budget better. We need this, or we need that, or we need time away from the kids. And, and those things might be true. Your struggles in your marriage, those issues probably, if you're having struggles, probably relate to what's going on, probably relate to the problem. But as a pastor, reading Paul, reading the Judaizers, there is a danger in misdiagnosing the problem. Yes, it is true, dear friend, if you're struggling in your marriage, that you might have communications problems. That that might be true. But you know what else is probably true? You're selfish. You're selfish. And it's very easy to say, well, you know what, I'm not the problem. The problem's outside. The problem is the other person. I've done nothing wrong. And dear friend, we cannot fall into the error of misdiagnosing the problem. Your greatest problem in life is your own heart. Your greatest need is spiritual circumcision. Your greatest problem is this. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Dear friend, that's that's your greatest problem. You do have other problems. I'm I'm not disregarding those. But in your life, the greatest problems that you're going to have are yourself. Dear friend, do not misdiagnose your problems. If you misdiagnose your problems, you will construct false solutions that get you nowhere. Our hope, our answer, is the grace of God. That's not simplistic. That is the answer to all of your problems. It's not stuff. It's not things. It's not things outside of yourself. You need the grace of God. You need to turn from your sins and acknowledge them before the Lord. Father, we, we ask and pray, Lord, that we would heed the error that the Judaizers made. That, Father, that we would not misdiagnose our problems. Lord, our greatest problem arises from within us. We ask and pray for your spiritual circumcision. We ask and pray that by the Spirit that you, Father, would either begin that process of spiritual circumcision in us or continue it. Lord, help us. In Christ's name, amen.